Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is produced on Gadigal land. The average age of a director in Australia is in their 60s. Some of the the really entrenched views around gender, they're not going to change from one conversation with me on a boardroom table. I now don't bother. I'd much rather invest my energy and time into those leaders, particularly male champions who get it and really want to make a change. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Short Black Series 5 is honoured today to have the one and only Dr Kirsten Ferguson AM joining us today. Kirsten, long time no see. We go back a little while and kind of sliding doors with friends and acquaintances and events and things. So it's great to finally get you in here to have a good chat. Really, it's all about head and heart, the art of modern leadership. A recent book, which has gone number one, going gangbusters. How's it been received? The feedback has been remarkable and what I'm really excited about is it's people who wouldn't normally buy a leadership book, you know, that quite happily say to me, this isn't really my kind of thing, but it seems to apply to parents and to small business owners and to people who aren't working in corporate areas, teachers, healthcare workers. So that makes me really happy, but it obviously applies to everyone. Most people I know, if they walk into a bookshop and they see a book on leadership, they walk the other way. What (laughs) is going to make them pick up your book? Oh, look, nothing. Nothing's going to make (laughs) anyone do anything. But I write in the introduction that I'm acutely aware there's 60,000 books on leadership available on Amazon. So why did you write (laughs) another one? (laughs) Well, exactly. Don't worry. I ask myself that question. I think what I'm trying to do is not tell anyone to do anything differently. So I talk about these skills of our head and their heart that we've all got already. So this isn't a way of, you know, having to relearn how to lead. It's more about being comfortable with the leader you are at home and the leader you are at work and integrating the two. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's also about putting an Australian lens on leadership, which we don't actually get a lot of, do we? I think that was an important gap in the market I really wanted to fill. You know, we've got some great writers like the Brené Browns and Simon Sinek's and Jay Shetty and Jim Collins, but they're all American. And I do think in Australia we have a unique approach to leadership. And, you know, a lot of that comes from our heritage and, you know, why should I and the whole she'll be right attitude that Australians have. And when we want to say something, we can be as blunt as a shovel. We really can. (laughs) And so I think there is a uniqueness to the way we lead and want to be led. And I think the last few years of the pandemic has shown us, you know, we've got this amazing bullshit detector (laughs) and we can smell bullshit a mile off. And we smelled a lot of it over the last few years. And I think what we expect from our leaders has really changed. What do Australians expect then of their leaders that perhaps the rest of the world don't? That's an interesting one. Australians really want to be 
part of decision making or they want to at least be heard. I think we've got a very independent spirit and, you know, this whole she'll be right or bucking up against authority and some of those really cultural heritage norms that we've got, leaders need to understand that. And so often we'll see leaders come from the US or from overseas and they really don't get Australians. And Australians know what that means, but often uh, people overseas don't. And so I think what we want to see from our leaders is that real merging of who someone is behind the scenes with who their public persona is. And Jacinda Ardern is often quoted as someone who did that really well. Volodymyr Zelensky has also done that well. But I think in Australia, we need to find that confidence for our public leaders to really be themselves at all times. And they'll discover that it actually builds trust. I think when you think about Jacinda Ardern and obviously Volodymyr Zelensky, there's an authenticity to them that resonates with people. And yet Jacinda Ardern arguably isn't all that popular at home, domestically, politically. But on the world stage, she really cut through, didn't she? She had that, well, authenticity that you can't manufacture. She was a modern leader, yeah. There's nothing about what I write and research that says modern leaders are perfect. So, you know, the fact that she's not popular domestically obviously is true and she stood down. I have to point out, though, the fact that she has stood down you know, really is the point. She knew when the right time was. She had that humility to know, okay, it's time to go. You look around at some of the leaders that we have that hold on for dear life and lose that trust and lose the credibility. Well, look, I'm not going to put my cynical journalism hat (laughs) on, Kirsten, but there is another view that she may well have sensed the time was right because the right opportunity was to be seized that was about to be coming through the door. Absolutely. So she may well be able to read the landscape ahead of time and before others. So one of the most important attributes of being a modern leader, and I'm sure we'll talk about these, and this has come through my research, is called leading with perspective. And it correlates the most with the eight attributes of leading with the head and heart. And in layman's terms, that's reading the room. So she's read the room perfectly. There's Mm. nothing wrong with that. And if you decide as a leader, okay, the time is now optimal for me to stand aside. For whatever reason. But it also takes self-awareness. So plenty of leaders go through life blindly thinking they're going to be popular forever or they'll be re-elected, you know, every single term. And it took humility, as I said. So yes, your point of view may be cynical, but I actually don't see it as a a negative about her leadership at all. Yeah, I really like that answer actually. It gives you another way to look at it. And as I said, I put my journalistic hat on, not that all journalists are cynics, but I remembered at the time and so many people were applauding the fact that and surprised that she was standing down and then so many other political pundits in the room said, hang on, hang on, she can read the room, this is what's going to happen, these positions will open up, the world stage, etc., etc. And I went, why are you so cynical? And good for her. Let's hope, you know, we do see her on the world stage. Can I say, you know, in my 4,000 years on the planet, feeling 71 going on 21, I have learnt that a lot of people don't chase being a leader, but they're often elevated to leadership positions through, you know, benign ambition. You know, they wake up and they've done really well and, and they're quite sort of surprised at how well they've done. And what I've also discovered is most people are elevated to their level of incompetence not competence. You're not taught leadership. You're not taught managing people. And yet all of a sudden, so many people that manage us are there because they're good at a skill set. They might be the best architect in the room. They might be the best media buyer in the room. But then they're elevated to a level of management and leadership. 
and yet they've never learned either. I um, I keep joking that I think my next book might be called Dinosaurs and Dickheads rather than <laughs> Head and Heart because we've all worked for dinosaurs and dickheads who, you know, may be technically brilliant and have great industry knowledge or be great networkers or whatever their skill is and then suddenly they're leading large groups of people and, you know, they have no idea what they're doing. Your comments, though, um, there's a bit to unpack there because you were talking about, you know, some people find themselves leaders and, and being elevated, which is very true. The other argument of my book, though, is that everyone is already a leader. So most people, if you ask them what a leader looks like, think of those traditional leaders in positions of authority who have been elevated and sit at the tops of our corporate companies or the country or the monarchs or, you know, explorers in the past. They were generally all men and generally all white men as well. Our view of what a leader is, though, has not kept up with where we're at now. And, you know, we see through movements, whether it's Me Too or Black Lives Matter or Greta Thunberg, who's a teenager or was a teenager when she first started having an impact, no formal authority whatsoever, but absolutely leading. During the pandemic, nurses, you know, they don't have staff, but no one would question their leadership in you know such challenging situations parents at home so I think there's a few bits to your story but the ultimate goal I hope is that we see less dinosaurs and less dickheads <laughs> rising through the ranks over time and it sounds to me that people possibly after reading your book need to be less focused on the title and what that takes as opposed to just listening with their heart and carrying empathy in everything they do yeah, it is a balance. So, I've, you know, it is head and heart. So maybe if I can just talk about what that looks like in practice. So leading with our head is what we've been rewarded for at school and at university, and it is what we get promotions on. But the attributes, and by the way, anyone listening can go and measure their own levels of head and heart leadership. Just visit headheartleader.com. It's totally free and it'll take you about five minutes. But the attributes of leading with the head, the first is curiosity, and that's obviously being curious about not just some things, but anything. Wisdom, and that's all around decision-making. Perspective, we talked about, that's uh, reading the room. And then capability, and that's having the capability to do whatever it is you do. You have to have those. You can't just be a heart-based leader. And all of us would know someone who's um, very well-intentioned, but that, you know, they're not very capable at their job. That doesn't work either. The heart-based attributes are humility, which is really confident humility we're looking for. Self-awareness of the impact that you're having on others, courage to speak up, even in the face of pressure not to do so. And then finally, empathy. And empathy is quite misunderstood. It's not sympathy or compassion or pity. It's really being able to seek out diverse experiences so you can put yourself in the shoes of others. But you can't just have some of these attributes. Every one of us has all of them. The art of modern leadership is knowing what to use and when. And not everyone's great at that. And we spoke right at the beginning. I think there's a lot of us who think that at work, we have to be a head-based leader. It's all about deliverables. And at home, we might show people our empathy or humility. Whereas a modern leader is actually comfortable to do that all the time. It doesn't matter whether you're at home or at work or in your community or your church or whatever it is that might be your hobby or your interest. You are the same leader everywhere because it's those skills that you've got that you keep hidden at work that actually will make the difference. So sometimes the advantage or the upper hand or the right answer is to say, I don't know, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we had more people who said, 
you know, I'm not sure of the best approach to this, but I know you've got far more experience in this area. You know, what do you think could be an option? And, you know, there's a syndrome, the smartest person in the room syndrome, and a lot of leaders feel they have to have all the answers. And that's because of those centuries-old ingrained ideas of leaders being all-knowing, heroic, powerful leaders that, you know, sort of said from on high what was going to happen, whereas that is not the modern leader we need today. Now, I look at your background and, gosh, you started in the Air Force when you were 17, became an officer in the Air Force. What led you to make that decision so young? <laughs> I know. Because when I look at leadership, look at the way you started in the Defence Force, which is, you know, in many respects, you know, a servant-type culture, isn't it? It is. So, I, yeah, I was 17. I was at a private girls' school here in Sydney and I think I was the first to ever go off to ADFA or the Australian Defence Force Academy at the time. I was there when it was pretty difficult uh, in the early 1990s, but fortunately did really well and ended up duxing my Air Force graduating class. So I got sent to an F-111 squadron where I have to say I am a total cliche. I'd watched Top Gun too many times and met my now husband of 25 years who was flying F-111s. But it, the stereotype of military leaders is often that it's like um, platoon and everyone's screaming at each other. And ADFA at the time was a bit like that. But the military itself is much more about servant leadership. And you really do learn that you need to earn the respect of people you're leading who are often far older than, you know, I was 21, leading people who'd been in the Air Force longer than I'd been alive. You finished your first degree there. Is that where you got your taste of wanting to understand leadership and the way people fell into line, what it took for majors and generals and those in charge to have that command and respect? It is. And I never realised, I turned 50 this year and never realised that 30 years ago now, you think you're feeling 71, you look (laughs) 21, by the way. I'm turning 50 looking 70. But yes, my first degree, I did a research thesis on the leadership of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force in Australia and the UK during World War II. And so it's, you know, this lovely full circle that I've never really let go of leadership. I did a PhD in leadership about a decade or more ago. And so it's just something that I am really passionate about. But I'm not a zealot in that, you know, people are getting it wrong. I think all of us are capable of being really effective leaders. It's just that sometimes we've never had the right role models to sort of follow. And is it a misconception to think you always need to lead from the front? (sighs) That's a difficult one. Everything's context driven. I think ultimately, if you're leading a you're a formal leader of a group of people, the buck does stop with you. You do need to be able to make a decision. You can't delegate that position that you hold to someone else. But I think to get the most effective outcome, there might be times where you voluntarily delegate particular parts of a task to someone else. But ultimately, in the end, it's still up to you. When you left the Air Force, you started working in the corporate sector and you, you ended up on lots of boards uh, working in the people and culture space because of your PhD and a law degree as well, I understand. I mean, when we look back and look at the law profession, that's really, you know, kind of the partnership space, which is very different from the defence space. How did you transition between those two areas? That was a massive, well, the first of many massive culture shocks. I went from, you know, being in the Air Force where there's a clear command and control and I remember turning up to the first day of my job at the law firm calling my boss Sir, which I still know him and he still thinks that's rather funny. 
But in a partnership, as you said, everyone is the boss. Everyone thinks they're the boss as well. And so you have to then learn to adapt your leadership style. And that really is something that everyone listening needs to remember, that what's effective in the military is not going to be effective in leading in a law firm or other parts of my career. I sit on different boards now and different cultures apply in each of those organisations. So even the way I lead through influence as a director needs to change depending on the culture that I'm in. You just made a key point, you know, when you move on to a board, your leadership style really is all about influence. And that's really it because it gets back to the CEO that leads the organisation. The board directs the CEO. Absolutely. And I think, you know, new directors really need to understand that, especially if you've come out of in a hands-on leadership role. And when I was first starting my board career, I was still a CEO and it was, you know, quite a mind shift and I was green and I feel for my poor for probably the first few years of being a new director because you do have to learn that you are not doing and even though the CEO may do things differently than you might that's not your role to to go and do it differently it's to influence them with really good questions to help try and guide an effective outcome. One of your I guess standout board positions was at the ABC through an incredibly tumultuous period can you talk us through what were some of the biggest challenges that you can recall and also how did you end up on the ABC board? (laughs) Well, I think, um, you know, I loved my time on the the board of the ABC and I know I'm sitting here at the moment inside Channel 10, but everyone in the media, I think, respects the work of of others in the field and the ABC is obviously a tremendous organisation. It was a really challenging time, that's for sure. And so I was there for five years and I think I had three different chairs and if we include myself, four different chairs in the role. You were interim for a while, weren't you, before Ita came on? Yes, yeah, so uh, I had about seven months, I think, as acting chair during, you know, a very challenging time and then was um, beyond thrilled when it was announced that Ita was becoming chair and that was a surreal moment to have gone through everything that we'd gone through in the seven months previous and then find myself in her living room doing a bit of a handover. So it was a moment I won't forget. What did Ita mean to you before you met her and after? Well, I I mean, I didn't, obviously, I had no idea she was going to be appointed as chair. And when it was announced, it kind of, I was surprised, but then immediately it it made good sense. I mean, she's got incredible um, experience. But I found a home video that I have shared with her when I was maybe, I don't know, eight, where I'm pretending to be Ita. And um, (laughs) it's really quite remarkable where I'm you know, asking about different things in the media. But, I mean, she's someone that I've grown up with, as have most Australians, so it was an amazing time. I want a bit more detail, though. (laughs) Can you walk us through the most challenging moment? Was the announcement of Ida, was before that, the Michelle Guthrie piece, was was that whole fallout? I'm not asking you to, you know, give up the war chest, but um, when you look back... I think um, for me, you know, putting aside the details of what happened, because I'm certainly not going to talk about that, but on a personal level, I'd never been in the public eye before. I'd never been papped. <laughs> I'd never had, um, you know, media trying to find out where I was and... And where you lived. Where I lived. I must say one of the major national newspapers got the wrong state and I was really quite pleased about that because I thought that might give me a bit of a break. I had never been on television before. And so my very first uh, television experience was a 20-minute live interview on ABC News 24 being grilled about what had happened. I remember seeing it. 
Yeah, and I'm pretty sure everyone in media at least was watching it. And you're aware of the pressure. And I had that moment of walking into the studio and going blank, like in the movies, thinking, oh, what, am I, you know, what am I doing? But then luckily, you know, sat down and I think my military training, to be honest, through that whole period came in handy because I was able to remain calm and collected. And that was what was needed at the time. And the public persona, I mean, for anyone who goes through anything like that, I think there's how you are privately, which is, you know, it's a very stressful time and, you know, you just, it was 24 hours, seven days a week for that period. But then publicly, I think what's needed is, you know, someone who can just keep it together and calm everything down. And that was my brief and I took that very seriously. And um, other than that first day's announcement, didn't do any media interviews at all. It was already being covered well and truly and I chose not to, to fuel that and I'm really pleased with that decision. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Was that process like being elevated to the interim chair? Was it a vote in the boardroom or were you appointed? I was appointed by the government, yeah. And then what sort of counsel are you given? Because the pressure on you instantly was significant. Yes. Right? You know, you are the interim face and voice of the ABC. Yeah. Uh, well, and remembering that David Anderson was also appointed the interim managing director at that time. So David and I worked really closely during that period because between us, we were probably the only other person that sort of understood. But I mean, there was no counsel, certainly not from the government. They <laughs> That was something they would never have wanted to do and I wouldn't have uh, taken it anyway. Yeah, I think we just got through that and managed it as best we could. And I, you know, I'm really pleased now looking back, um, we were able to navigate it. Yeah, I wasn't trying to catch you out. I was just trying to imagine what it must have been like for you because the pressure would have been enormous. And then David Anderson for him as well. I mean, did you kind of pinch each other and say, no, we've got each other's back, right? Let's ride, <laughs> let's ride this cowboy until, until we're fucked off. And we've got to hang on. I mean, we've got to get through this. Yeah, we didn't need to say that to each other. I think we both very much had, you know, the ABC's best interest at heart at that point. Personally, it was um, really challenging, especially the first sort of month or two. I mean, in the first day it was announced, I hadn't even been able to tell my children. It all happened so quickly. And the first thing they knew is they were seeing my name all over the news and, you know, they had no idea what was going on. And then there were some, you know, pieces of press because people are starting to investigate, well, who is this person? And, you know, that's not a nice experience either. Well, what was that like for you? 
oh, it was shocking, you know, and it really gives you a different perspective. Did it feel intrusive? Very much so. I mean, I respect the work of the media. I know why that happens. And gosh, the irony is I was there chairing a media company. So there was never any question that it shouldn't happen. But when you're the recipient and it's certainly not your background or not something you're expecting, yeah, it can be really jolting. How do you think you landed that job initially at the ABC on the board? I mean, you'd had a lot of experience in in human resources and people in culture. So how do you think that sequence of events occurred? Yeah. Because when you landed that gig, you must have thought, you know, pinch me, this is extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Although I wasn't sure at the start whether or not this was going to be for me because I knew that the ABC was always being politicised and I'm just not a political person. It's not been my, um, I have no sort of connection with either party. They both drive me to despair. (laughs) So I think there was part of me that even way back before I was appointed was a little fearful of what it would mean, but it was easy to get caught up in the excitement of, you know, being part of the ABC and I'll I'll never regret it. I'm really glad I did it. Do you miss it? Uh, No, (laughs) because I I quite enjoy now, you know, not having every second person have a, a view on when something has been programmed or not programmed or there's, you know, too much bias or too little bias or whatever it might be. I'm quite pleased I don't need to sort of deal with that now. Well, now that the ABC is behind you, now you've got the book launch and it's off and running, you know, you're in demand as a a speaker and a lecturer and an in-person go-to sage, but you also write a weekly column for the SMH and Age called Got A Minute. Yeah. How did this come about? Oh, it came about because I'd been reading Roxanne Gay's work friend column in New York Times and we just don't have anything similar. And I suggested it, Julia Noughton, who now leads Lifestyle at Fairfax, at nine, gosh, not Fairfax. And we thought we'd give it a try. And for the first couple of months, probably, I really, you know, struggled to, how do I do this? And I wasn't sure it was going to work. And then I just relaxed, I think, and people got behind it. And it's now hugely successful. (laughs) And I must say, people often think that advice columns, they make, you know, I make up the questions or it's all fake. Are you genuinely inundated with questions? Absolutely. And they're real questions and they shock me. (laughs) And it's all about workplace, right? I mean, they're not asking you to solve the family dilemma over, you know, Auntie Mary and Uncle John divorcing. No, no, thankfully, I'm definitely not doing those. You're no agony aunt. No, but there are anything about work, leadership, careers. And the biggest theme is the number of bad bosses out there. You know, really? you talk about the dinosaurs and dickheads, there's a lot of them out there. Is that what prompted this book? <laughs> uh, no, well, Head and Heart, I think, is just, you know, something I'm passionate about. It was always coming. It was always coming. But yeah, I, th- I think I might look at the dark side next. Yeah, did the column, though, give you some ideas for different chapters? No, not so much in Head and Heart, because Head and Heart really is about, you know, the really positive ways that we can lead. And the column often, and obviously it's self-selecting because people are wanting advice on really difficult situations, but it's often where it's really quite hard for people at work. Let's talk a little bit about women in the workforce. Has much changed over the years? Well, it's all relative. I guess, you know, we're no longer stuck at home and not allowed out, but I don't think it's changing nearly quickly enough. And, you know, my daughters are 22 and 20 and I'm watching them just starting to face some of the same, you know, blockages in their careers and unconscious bias. And we hear the stats about pay parity going to take another century and that's pretty depressing. So I think there's a lot more that can happen. 
off the top of your mind, what's the number one thing we could change to hasten that along? Because in the, the most recent media gender scorecard, women are, are becoming more visible up to a certain age and then you're invisible. While we're becoming more visible, we're still going backwards in terms of being quoted as experts, being you know, sought out for advice. I mean, men are still running the game. Yeah, they are. And, you know, you ask the number one thing, and that's difficult because there's obviously many things, but it does take leadership. And I know we're talking about leadership, but it takes the men in power, and it still is predominantly the men in those powerful, formal leadership roles, to either move aside. And I was very excited to see we've got our first new female CEO of Coles, which is uh, fabulous. But I think we need men to either, you know, realise that their successes need to be women so we can start that pipeline looking a bit healthier or actually making a difference and not just saying, yes, we're, we're going to investigate gender pay, which is great, but actually just go and fix it. And things like domestic violence leave are important. There's just so many different elements to it. But in the end, it comes down to those attitudes. You know, why aren't they asking women experts? And it's because they don't even think about it and that's because they've got that blind spot that women can even be an expert in something. When you work on so many boards and you come across a couple of dinosaurs, what's your best way of tackling their worst aspects? I used to try and engage and try and explain what, you know, where perhaps they might like to rethink something. I don't even bother anymore. Too hard? It is. It's too hard. It's too they demoralising. They just need to die off. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. If you're talking about dinosaurs and, you know, the average age of a director in Australia is in their 60s, some of the, the really entrenched views around gender, they're not going to change from one conversation with me on a boardroom table and I now don't bother. I'd much rather invest my energy and time into those leaders, particularly male champions who get it and really want to make a change. Yeah, so there's no point wasting your breath we really just focus on the generational change yeah I mean it, it sounds like I'm um, sort of avoiding a difficult conversation and it's not that at all it's just that if you know what's the definition of insanity just trying again and again if you've judged that that person really isn't interested in rethinking they're not even curious don't waste your breath anymore yeah you are very passionate about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. What about older women? Because they're increasingly invisible. I know as an older woman, I'm sensing an invisibility in my everyday. Yeah, me too. Although I have to admit, sometimes I quite like it. <laughs> you can get away with more, I think. And... What are you trying to get away with? <laughs> well, I think uh, we can say what we want with far less, more abandoned now than perhaps somewhere earlier. Yeah, but less impact because no one's noticing. Yeah. True. Well, we're having a good conversation. And that's all that matters. Preaching to the converted. Yeah, I think it's a travesty, particularly financially, what happens to older women. We know the stats that they are retiring with far less income and super mm. than their male counterparts. So on that, and some of the other things we've discussed today, you've got two young daughters. What do you bang on at them at home about? You know, what are the key things you need to arm your daughters with? to make them successful for themselves? Well, the, my young daughters aren't so young anymore, so they're both adults. One's turning 21 and the other's, she's 23. So I'm always, I mean, I'm so proud of them because they stand up for themselves far more than I ever had confidence to do at that age, I think. And, you know, they've grown up in a home where they don't know anything but equality and 
obviously being passionate about rights and respecting women and other minorities or other people. But, you know, they're coming up against people who don't think that way. And so now I'm just always reinforcing to them, you know, you've got your point of view and you're absolutely entitled to it. And being respected for that is something that's key. So the attributes you look for in young leaders, the key attributes? The absolute same as what I would say to a 70-year-old, you know, someone who can lead with their head and their heart. I think young people are much more able to be moulded into the kind of modern leader that I'm advocating because they've seen that around other people of their own age. And I just hope we see more and more young people in leadership roles. You really say leadership is just a series of moments. And is it about making the right decision on the back of those moments and learning from each one? Well, yeah, I do believe that leadership is a series of moments and every moment is an opportunity for us to leave a positive or negative legacy in our wake. And that's through our words, actions, behaviours. So every moment we're role modelling the kind of legacy we want to leave. And that might be the way you treat someone at the supermarket checkout or it could be, you know, how you're speaking to someone that you're leading. It doesn't matter. Each of those moments, though, is going to have an impact. It's funny, you know, we get lots of media students through and they always want to know the secret of success and, you know, it's not an easy thing to answer because, like beauty, success is in the eye of the beholder. But I will often say to people, manners are free, but they'll take you a long way. They do. Be a good egg. (laughs) That's a good way to succeed. I mean, you can't go too wrong. And a lot of leading with the head and the heart is putting people at the centre of your decision making. So if you're actually someone who's not just driven by profit and, you know, profit and loss and money. It's about people and then the other, the rest will follow. Money will follow if you get everything else right. I also read you're doing a lot of individual coaching and look, most people I know wouldn't believe that you need a coach. Why do you need a coach? Oh gosh, we all need coaches. You know, there's a real difference between coaches, mentors and sponsors, but a coach is someone who is there and their whole role is to help give an external sort of view to you about how you're going. And so the people I work with are all senior leaders and they have a lot of people around them who are doing what they need, but they might not be honest with them about their leadership. And so the benefit of having a coach or someone who can come and do a 360 with you and talk through the feedback is that, you know, with everyone I work with, I am very kind, but I don't hold back because this might be the one chance they have to really hear some areas that they could uh, think about differently or perhaps approach differently. Right, so what's the difference between a coach and a mentor? Well, a mentor is uh, someone who you may know through work or you know, another peer or someone in your organisation who is there to just give you advice and be a, a trusted sort of guide. Sounding board. A sounding board, yeah. And then a sponsor is someone who really will put their reputation on the line and actually put you forward for different opportunities. All three, they're different roles, but they're all really important to everyone at any level. I think our paths first crossed via Twitter and social media when you were building the campaign and the concept really for celebrating women in 2017. How did that come about? Because I remember reading your tweet and thinking, I love that you just wanted to capture the wonderful essence of a woman and to celebrate someone new and different every day that was doing special things. Yeah, I mean, that became the most extraordinary year of my life, really. And it was a totally organic, accidental idea 
because I was pissed off. Uh, at the start of 2017, I remember seeing some abusive tweets aimed at uh, an Australian um, media broadcaster, a woman, and remember thinking, you know, you're such a bystander online, whereas in real life you might call the police, but you can't do anything. And uh, Hillary Clinton had just lost the election to Trump and people were knitting their pink pussy hats. So I thought, right, what can I do? And I just wanted to see if we could find a way to make Twitter just a bit more positive for women. And so I made this very bold commitment to see if I could celebrate two women from all walks of life every single day of 2017 and had no idea how that was going to pan out. I remember reaching out to you at one point and you said, I'm not sure I've done the wisest thing, <laughs> like I'm exhausted and, I, and I'm not even a third of the way there. You were kind of overwhelmed with responses. Absolutely. So by the end of that year, I celebrated 757 women from 37 countries and it grew far bigger than anything I ever expected and it's led to spin-off campaigns all over the place. But it was so wonderful and, yeah, I, did, I think if I'd known what was going to happen, I might not have done it. And so it's a bit of a lesson to just jumping in and doing it because I would have strategized too much I would have thought okay so it's going to get this big and you know that means I'll need to think about this that and the other and I didn't do any of that I just did it and I think that's why it was popular too it was just so real and it was so wonderful the women's stories. But you're a prolific campaigner really not necessarily deliberately but by default because after that you went on to write the book Womankind with Catherine Fox the next year I mean do you ever lie down? <laughs> I'm often asked that. Well, I mean, Womankind was just an extraordinary result of the campaign and it just shows you how one small tweet, you know, can lead to these crazy things. But ironically, I'd spent most of my career not uh, wanting to be seen at women's events. I would run for the hills. I didn't want anyone thinking I was some kind of difficult woman. I just wanted to be known as a leader, not a female leader. And uh, that was because I'd come through male-dominated environments where women survive by just getting along and not sticking out. But it, in the last sort of you know, decade, I've really realised that it's actually working with other women, helping amplify and lift other women. That's been the most rewarding part. Does social media drive you mad at times? Though? I mean, it's been a critical part of your success in the last few years, but there are times when it's, it's just so toxic. It saddens me profoundly how needy and demanding it can be at times. Yes, I think social media is definitely a double-edged sword. My personal experience has always been quite positive, but that's not to mean it won't change, and I definitely observe what happens to other people. But I find it such an effective way to communicate with people that we would never otherwise get to communicate with. And as you said, you and I met on Twitter, some of the most amazing people that I'm now you know, connected with in real life, I've met online. So I wouldn't swap it for the world, but you do have to go into it with a real awareness of the dark side. Yeah, I, look, I, I'm sure lots of people write terrible things about me and reach out on Twitter and say really nasty things, but I've already blocked them, so I don't, I don't really <laughs> I know. I mute. I'm a muter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. worry me. But, um, you know, we're all different and you do yeah. see the effects it has on some people. And I wonder what advice you give to young women who are starting out in the workforce. For example, you know, I see them putting their life out on social media, bikinis and swimsuits and personal life. And, you know, if you want a successful career, what would you say to young Australians today about how much they reveal about their personal life? How wise is that? Oh, look, I hate to think if we had had social media when we were young, Sandra, I don't want to judge anyone because I'm really glad there wasn't anyone with a smartphone, you know, when I was growing up with at pubs and on the beaches. 
I do think, you know, it's hard because you're encouraging people, as I said, to integrate the leadership you have at home and at work. And there might be some people now who are passionate about, I don't know, bikini influencing, and they're actually doing really well at that. And it's just a matter of then thinking, you know, when you're 50, is that going to work for whatever career you're doing? And once it's out there, you can't get it back. Yeah, but I think if that's something that that person is proud to do, you know, I just, I don't want to judge them. But it is hard. I think my particular career would suffer if I decided to go and become a bikini influencer. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's horses for courses, isn't it? And, you know, maybe we'll all wake up and no one will really care. And maybe it's because we come from a generation where you did care. I think that's more the point. I think if we were to ask younger people whether they care that someone they work with has different pictures on their social media, they probably don't. So I'm not sure. You and I are not the best judges of that. Don't say that, Kirsten. I (laughs) think I'm a very good judge. (laughs) We'll have a private coaching session next. Oh, okay. I'll have to take you off on that. Dr. Kirsten Ferguson, it's been a real joy to have you here at Short Black. I hope all the leaders of tomorrow are listening today and run out and buy the book because I know they're going to learn a lot. Thanks so much for spending some time here at Short Black. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.